Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by Heart to Heart Medical Supply. Heart to Heart is an American company offering FDA-registered respirator masks at the lowest prices. Heart to Heart offers free, same-day shipping, and by using the promo code HOLD20 at checkout, you can save 20% off your entire order. Visit hearttoheart.com. That's H-A-R-T, the number two, H-A-R-T, dot com. Hearttoheart.com. I hear a pop and then glass breaking on the windshield, and I felt something hit me in the chest. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish. Gotta fight. Hey, welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. I'm very, very happy to bring in to the studio a hero in our community. I would say somebody that has served his job description with distinction, and he saved community members from utter chaos and certain death a little over two years ago. Um, He is somebody that has taken on, I would say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but taken on more of a passion with acknowledging public safety issues and the frontline workers that protect all of us in our community. And without further ado, I welcome Eric Stark. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's Thank you for coming here. My pleasure. Um, you know, you are a hero. And that's how people compare you to heroic actions of people in history that are faced with uh, significant dire situations that put themselves on the line and sacrifice themselves for other people. And you did this in the performance of your duties that day. And you were a victim yourself. And we'll get into that, but I want to say uh, it's my pleasure having you here, man. Thank you for taking the time and being courageous and uh, just being a good human. Thank you. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you personally, how long you've been working, where you work, um, why you do what you do now more than ever. And just we're going to get into other, I think, topics of our discussion. And the goal of this is to just have an understanding and even disagree on some things that, you know, I don't even know if we will disagree. Who knows? But I think that these long-form discussions are what's needed in our community versus short-form media clips that don't really tell the whole story of issues that impact public safety. And um, I guess I'll leave it up to you, man. So who are you? Give give the audience a bit of a background of uh, your job and uh, what you're up to. Right. Well, I've been a King County Metro Transit operator for about nine years now. Um, My wife and I actually uh, both are operators, and we work out of North Base, so primarily serves the the North End, Shoreline, North Seattle. You know, some stuff comes into downtown. So I've been doing that for about nine years, um, full-time for about four it's definitely more challenging to be a bus driver uh, these days. Okay, and you and you use that comparison to 
you know, you started about four years ago full-time. Is that correct? Yeah. Did you do it part-time prior to being full-time Metro driver? Yeah, because uh, Metro, you you start as a part-time operator. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I think they've, in the last couple of years, they took some people uh, right into full-time if they had experience. But traditionally, you start as a part-time operator with Metro, and then um, you put yourself on a list. And when the opportunity comes up, you can apply to be a full-time operator. Are there, so obviously you need a CDL license, correct? To, right. Is a specific other license you need to have to be a Metro bus driver? Is a CDL just? Just CDL. Okay. Yeah. And, and do, me- you, do you put yourself through like a CDL school to no, be certified? No, that's one of the great things about Metro is um, if you get hired on as a part-time operator, uh, they put you through. Metro does the CDL class and they do the testing. Really? And so, you know, People who go into truck driving, that kind of thing, sometimes pay thousands of dollars to uh, get their CDL. Metro pays for that. So that's a, it's a great benefit. That's a huge benefit. Yeah. Huh. And so you got you get lucky enough to get picked up full-time. Right. Um, but how many years prior, you might have said this, and I might have just forgot, I might have spaced it, but how many years were you part-time prior to being full-time? Uh, about four years. Okay. So I've been, I've been full-time, I think, almost five years now okay do you like what you do I do like what I do you know it's not uh, it's not what I thought I'd be doing but uh, it's it's a good job the the pay and the benefits are fantastic yeah um, you know you kind of you kind of work for yourself in a way you're you don't have a supervisor standing over your shoulder the whole time you know when you're driving the bus um, you're the you're kind of the boss so sure so that's nice yeah well, Metro, I mean, you see the buses all the time. Um, they, they're very big, and they take a huge amount of space on the road. And yeah. I find myself, and I think part of the audience, find ourselves getting impatient with Metro bus drivers and try to go <laughs> around them. It's like, you know. Um, but no, credit to you. I mean, for, for a long period of time, I rode public transit just to get to my house, just to uh, save money and you know, not have a, a vehicle. And I respect public transit a lot, but it's got some challenges, right? So, yeah. and then you deal with the public almost every day when you're, when you're at work. Um, are there specific things that um, you really take away as being, uh, what are the, what, what are the, what are the good routes? What routes do you like to do? Are you still on 75? <laughs> you still do that one? Well, I'm a board operator. I'm a night board operator. What does that mean? It means that you get, you get different work every day. Um, so, you know, one day I could be driving the 75 next day. It could be the 41. It could be one of the shoreline routes. So you fill in where they're short. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I find out my work the the day before is when you find out it's people who are out sick or that kind of thing. Work needs to be filled. That's what board operators do. Do you like the articulated bus or do you like just the, uh, the standards at 40 feet? Yeah, we have uh, forty footers and thirty-five footers. Okay. Um, I prefer the smaller buses, but I the articulated buses are actually easier to drive. Really? Yeah they they're easier to turn. It's easier to make turns with those buses. Um, so the I, hybrid ones, or just doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, and they're all they're all hybrid. I think our whole fleet is hybrid now. There might be a few diesel onlys left at Bellevue base. Okay. But, uh, Are you trained on the ones that connect to the electrical wires? I'm not trolley trained. I've never driven trolleys. Okay. So that's, 
you basically consider those trolley buses, correct? Yeah, that's what they call them. Okay. For me, that's just unusual. I got a problem with dealing with electrical lines right above my head and I'm trying to connect. <laughs> I see those Metro guys doing that all the time. So, um, but just specific to Metro, the reason why I ask you the kind of bus you, you like to drive is, you know, I've trained on Metro buses when I was in SWAT, geez, almost every year where we would uh, do hostage rescue or just uh, try to figure out how to get on board the bus, how to get on board the bus methodically, tactically with efficiency. Um, how do we dominate the area? Because as you know, you get a lot of, uh, I guess, riders, and uh, sometimes people that are standing room only, right? Yeah. And then you deal with people that might be dealing with issues or committing crime, and then police have to get on board and navigate through the aisle and all the people that are sitting there. So it becomes problematic. So the training on the buses specifically is a skill set that needs constant repetition. And you put yourself, you put, we put ourselves through scenarios to um, mitigate some of the safety hazards that might uh, reach us when we're doing those operations. But, um, you know, I think for your job as a Metro bus driver, you deal with the public, you're hands on, not touch, physically touching people. But what I mean by that is you interact with them every day. Right. And so um, for me, that's compelling because you come across all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. in your line of work, just like the police do. Now, obviously, we have the enforcement role, community caretaking function. Um, we're there to help people, but we're there to, to assist Metro bus operators with issues they have going on with their uh, people that are riding their bus and then remove people when necessary. How often do you come across situations um, where police intervention is needed on your route specifically from when you, whatever you fill in. Right. So for me personally, um, there's only been a handful of times where I've needed, I, I'm not sure I even really needed police intervention, um, but I've had police show up on the bus. Um, is it because just uh, you called your base in or somebody in the bus called 911 or looking for some assistance? Right. So if we have an issue we call our transit control center and then they decide whether to dispatch a supervisor or police. Um, I, one night I had a, you know, sleepers are common. You get to the end of the line and uh, somebody won't wake up and you need to get them off the bus. So um, I've had sleepers before. I can usually wake them up and encourage them off the bus. Uh, I had one, downtown uh, it was one o'clock in the morning in the winter I was driving the e-line and he just would not wake up so they were going to send a supervisor but they were shorthanded so they sent uh, Metro Transit Police okay King County two big dudes <laughs> they got on the bus and they walked back to talk to the guy and he woke up with a start you know uh, you know looking for a fight and I think he saw these two big guys and decided not to but I still remember that because the first thing out of his mouth was he looked right up towards the front of the bus where I was sitting, and he said, you called the cops on me? <laughs> and I didn't, of course. I thought a supervisor was going to show up. Sure, sure. So um, so sometimes you might have to personally, when you, when you relay your information to your dispatch, who then relays the information to 911, correct? Right. Or a supervisor hears what you've got going on when you call in. Metro Transit Dispatch, and then they decide whether or not 
they should do it. Hence why they're a supervisor, right? Right. Got it. So they're the basically the eyes and ears to make sure that you're protected and make sure it's done procedurally correct. Right. Okay. Um, but you say that doesn't happen often? It happen often? It doesn't happen often. Uh, part of it could be the routes that I drive, but um, I'd also like to think that I try to treat everybody I, I try to start at the same level with everybody. You know, everybody's a human being and therefore worthy of respect and dignity. Yeah. And so I don't, I love, I love my interactions with my passengers. It's the thing I enjoy about the job the most. Do most people say hi to you when they come on the board, on board the bus? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's, it's actually, I find for me, it's rare when somebody doesn't acknowledge you or, Say hello, or well, say, or say thank you when they get off the bus. That is nice to hear. Yeah. Do you feel is that that because you're providing a service to them, so they're they're being respectful and thanking you for that service? I think so. Um, you know, it could be just Seattle tends to be kind of a courteous area, so maybe that's it. You know, and the interesting thing is even people who, even people who don't pay the fare, um, I I treat everybody the same. You know. Um, and I have most of those people when they get off the bus say thank you. So I I typically don't have issues. I can honestly say in nine years of driving, I have never had a personal confrontation with a passenger. Is that right? Yeah. I don't I'm kind of a diplomat by nature. And I'm not saying that with just astonishment, it's because of yeah, you know, I'm not judging your personality. You're a great dude. That's why you're here, that's why I'm talking with you. Um, but I find that hard to believe that you've never really had an interaction that went south with you with a passenger that comes on board. Yeah. Not to my recollection. I, uh, because like I said, I, I, I try to speak respectfully to people. Absolutely. I I try to understand, try to have some empathy, understand where they're coming from. And if I can help them and meet a need, I will. I mean, I'm direct when I need to be direct with people, but I have not had a a verbal, even a verbal altercation with a passenger in all the time I've been driving with That's incredible. Metro. Good for you. And good for those passengers too, right? Yeah. Do you find that, um, because you sub, I don't know if sub is the proper word, but you you drive all over the place, wherever you're needed, right? You're a fill-in. Right. You call it the board, is that correct? Yeah, the okay. extra board. Extra board, maybe that the board is what dispatch refers to it as. You're, you're giving me lingo, <laughs> metro bus lingo. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll drop some cop lingo too. Um, so you just, you don't find that the different areas of the city, um, that changes or the time of, you know, whether it's nighttime or daytime, that doesn't change? your interactions with people? Well, you know, it, it can be more challenging at night. And why do you think that is? Um, I think because maybe the, the kind of people that are out at night riding the bus, especially during this last year, you know, we don't have a lot of kind of regular passengers. Um, so it's, it's quite a few people who are either just riding the bus to ride you know, to get out of the cold or, um, because, you know, a lot of times the bus is a safer, warmer place to be than being on the street. Yeah, so. so I think we get a lot, at least in my experience, uh, the routes I drive, we get a lot more homeless at night. Um, 
maybe people who are down on their luck. Not a lot of regular people coming and going. Well, I don't want to say regular people. Not a lot of people who uh, are going to work or coming yeah. home from work. Yeah, so basically you know, the cadence of your passengers is different. Yeah. I would say that clientele is different, right? Because right. you have all classes of our society, right, that interact with public transit. Um, so I could I could see where you're going with that. Yeah. yeah. It's just like policing. You deal with all sorts of people in our community. And uh, sometimes that can be challenging, right? Yeah. Because perceptions of people, interactions, personalities, right? I'm sure you've got your fellow drivers that some of them probably get into more verbal altercations, if not physical altercations with people. I think at the end of the day, it's just like policing. It all comes down to personalities Hmm. and how you take things in the performance of your job with the interaction you're having with however one community member or multiple and how you take that interaction, whether positive or negative, will determine the outcome of that interaction, that communication, right? So that's yeah. just, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's uh, That's why I think, you know, Metro bus drivers, um, they do a great service and because they serve the public. And that's why I think it's just, uh, it's great to have you on to give that perspective from a Metro bus driver. And I compare it to just policing because we're public servants. Yeah. But we're the enforcement arm of when people make bad decisions and we're there to hold them accountable. And so sometimes, you know, that interaction, you're meeting people at their worst times, majority of the time. Right. And so you have to have a skill set um, to mitigate as safely and as, as successfully as possible those interactions immediately. Yeah. And so it's a skill. And um, I think we, we get there through training, life experience, and some people just have the gift. Some people, the gift meaning it's easier for others, some for some than others. And then you develop it over time through training. So I think you probably encounter that on your day-to-day, right? If yeah. you were to give one piece of advice to uh, the public, your fellow drivers, or police, what would it be? Especially during these difficult times, I would say we need to look beyond appearance and really even beyond behavior and see each other as human beings. I mean, I'm a man of faith, so I believe that all human beings are created in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. So if we can all just treat each other as fellow human beings, if that's the starting point, I think you're going to run into a lot fewer confrontations and conflicts with people. If we have some empathy, you know, try to put yourself in that person's shoes and remember they're a fellow human being. Um, their behavior doesn't necessarily define them, their appearance, they're a human being and therefore at the very basic level are worthy of dignity and respect. Now you may not respect their behavior, but you can respect the fact that they're a fellow human being on this planet. And I think if you start there, and have some empathy, you're going to find that you're going to have fewer conflicts and confrontations with people. I mean, conflict is inevitable, right? But there's a lot we can do to mitigate that by just treating each other as human beings. That's pretty profound, what you said. 
and the reason why I say it's profound is because I really like what you're saying and that your belief process that it's faith-based as well. And did you feel that way prior to being a Metro bus driver, even part-time? Yeah. So you've always had this part of your upbringing, treating people with dignity and respect, because if you don't, what's, what's the outcome typically? Well, the outcome is going to be confrontation and conflict. And I, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of conflict. Um, but I just, I think because of my faith and my upbringing, I'm a de-escalator and a diplomat by nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can think of instances when I was, you know, a teenager where things came up and it just was my natural mode. And I've been able to de-escalate most potentially volatile situations that I've been confronted with. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, just meeting you, I mean, I've met you before, um, but you're, you're a big fella. Like, you're physically intimidating. You're, you're tall and you're wide. you got wide shoulders. So I think right off the bat, some people are to immediately judge you. Like, this guy's big. He could probably kick my... <laughs> but the way you come across, there's just like your demeanor. You put people at ease. And I think that's a skill. Maybe you've developed that over time, but you just got to telling me that you were able to figure that out a long time ago. Yeah. And that you really never meet a positive outcome if you're challenging people unnecessarily. Right. But also it comes down to just like policing, we have to have that type of mindset. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to do, especially when you're having a tough day because you're meeting people at their worst times. Right. Um, but having said that, that's public service. Right. And if we don't have that skill set, that training, um, that could lead to an outcome that's negative. But the other flip side of that too, though, is that the other individual, the other human being that you're interacting with, mm-hmm. they have a say in it too, right? Right. They have a significant say of how that interaction goes, whether positive or negative. So it's it's incumbent upon both people to be able to interact with one another. It depends upon... It depends upon you know, how your day is going, whether or not yeah. that's going to go good or bad, whether and, or not you have substance abuse issues, mental health, whatever, financial problems. Right? right. And, you know, I get, don't get me wrong, I get frustrated and uh, I may be unhappy underneath, but I, I managed to, I managed to keep that in check and have civil interactions with people even. And, and, you know, like you say, it does depend on both parties but I can only control me. I can only control what I say, how I feel, how I carry myself. And so that's what I focus on. And then just try to have some empathy, understand where the person's coming from. Like you said, as a bus driver, we do, we get people with substance abuse issues, uh, mental challenges, those kinds of things, uh, or people who can't pay the fare. Um, some people just don't want to pay the fare. But a lot of people, you know, I'm not a rich man. I've, I've lived paycheck to paycheck. I, I understand what it's. I don't understand what it's like to live on the street. Um, but I know what it's like to be poor. And so, you know, I imagine some of my passengers have to decide. Well, do I pay this two seventy five for the fare, or do I eat something today? You know, so I I don't know people's motives. I can't. I'm not a mind reader. 
So I just assume the best and then treat people that way. I like it. And you say empathy. And yet you say this still with such confidence, even after being almost killed yeah. by a fellow human being, somebody out of their mind. And that day is pretty significant for you. Mm-hmm. Did that change your life? Sure. So if you don't know uh, the story, Eric, uh, two years ago, was driving Route 75, correct? Mm-hmm. And if I get things wrong, please correct me. I don't want to be wrong. Um, it was March, some late March, right? Wednesday? March, March 27th. It was a Wednesday. Walk us through that day. Like, normal day going to Metro. Yep. 75, met a bit of fill-in day. Yeah, in fact, I was, uh, I was doing a vacation relief. Somebody was on vacation, and I picked their week of vacation. So I was driving the same route every day, the, the 75, um, that particular week. It was a Wednesday, beautiful sunny day. I remember road relieving the morning driver at Northgate Transit Center, and everything was good. I knew UW was out on spring break. I thought it's gonna be an easy night, you know. So I got in the bus, uh, headed for Lake City. Had picked up a bunch of passengers. Uh, got to 125th and Lake City Way, and dropped some people off. Picked some people up. Headed towards east, towards Sandpoint Way. 125th becomes Sandpoint Way. I came around the corner. And I saw a gentleman run across the road from east to west towards the bus stop. I assumed it was somebody running to catch the bus. That that happens a lot, right? I see it all the time driving my POV, which means personally owned vehicle. (laughs) I mean, some lingo. Um, So that happens a lot, right? People are just sprinting towards the bus. I've also seen bus drivers just like, too late, take off. (laughs) If if, If I think somebody wants the bus, I see somebody running a block away. I generally will stop and wait Good. for him. So he runs across the street. He trips and falls right at the fog line in front of the bus shelter. And he fell hard. I mean, he. I remember he smacked the side of his face on the asphalt. And I thought, oh, you know, this guy might need medical attention. So I had somebody, I think, who was getting off, wanted off at that stop. But because this guy fell, I stopped short about five yards just to see if I was going to have to call the coordinator for medical attention for this guy or whatever. He rolls over onto his back, and his arm, his right arm flops out to the side. And I see what looks like a gun in his hand. I thought, that's weird. Is that a gun in his hand? But, you know, it's I'm on Sandpoint Way. Yeah, I'm near Lake City, but I'm on Sandpoint Way. It's a beautiful sunny day. This is out of context. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. And I must have looked away for a couple of seconds or something because then the next thing I know, he's standing where he fell about five yards away directly in front of my side of the windshield. And now he's in a shooter stance and he's pointing the gun so this guy, at the bus. Okay, so let's just recap this. Yeah. This is pretty significant. Beautiful day. You're doing your 75 route. Yeah. Coming from the north to south, some fella runs east to west. Face plants hard. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, not thinking that they're 
uh, not in good shape. You're, you're worried about calling dispatch your coordinator yeah. to see if they need medical attention. Um, and then you notice him flop over with a gun in his hand. Yeah. And then you just kind of don't think much about it because it's just kind of just something that's, what is that? But then you've got yeah. other stuff going on. I find that remarkable too, right? It's like there's a fellow who just fell. He looks like he's got a gun in his hand. Something else gets your attention real quick, and then all of a sudden you're faced with a significant life and death situation. Right. Of course, I didn't think that. at the, Even in that yeah, because moment. Because you're not processing it, right? Yeah. I, I'm still thinking... What is this guy doing? I mean, you. <laughs> one would think. I, I talked to a couple of my uh, police officer friends about this on Saturday, and he talked about this process that you go through as a police officer. And I can't remember the acronym he used, but he goes, "You got hung up on the was it the observation part? You got hung up because it's so out of context for you trying to decide." You know, I wasn't even at the decision phase yet. I was still in the observation stage. Like, what is this guy doing? I don't, and I remember thinking, I don't understand what's going on. And then I hear pop. So, and that happens, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Just yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just trying to go through this with you, this process. I think the mental process is fascinating because it impacts everybody differently. Yeah. I think experience, life experience changes that. You haven't seen that happen much. No. Right? Somebody run across the street. I mean, you see that. Sure. Right? You've automatically assumed. Right. He's probably trying to catch the bus. In no way did that meet your level of processing mentally. Right. That he was there with a gun to do some harm. Yeah. And so just that mental leap from you've already made an assumption of what he's doing which is just based on human behavior, mm-hmm. given your experience. But you've never really encountered somebody who you thought was there to catch the bus, but yet he falls. So you've made already two assumptions. Yeah. Do I need, you know, he runs, oh, I got to hold the bus for this guy, which is cool. Thank you for doing that. So I've been late to buses. Then more importantly, you see him fall. And you're like, well, so then you've already made another mental processing um, leap, and I call it a leap because you're going through this. You might want you, you probably need to get this guy some medical attention because he face planted pretty damn hard. Yeah. And then you're met with that that moment, right? And so you're reeling at that point because you mentioned you're, you get a couple of police friends and is talking about processing this so it's the same thing with policing and it goes along the lines of we had the discussion about just de-escalation and just personalities when it comes to those types of situations for police officers i'm just talking about me specifically um we have a lot of training and then we have experience and seeing somebody run across the bus or run across the lanes of traffic to try to catch a bus. I've seen before working, seen it on my personal time, seen somebody face plan hard. I've seen that many times, seen people get hit by cars. And I've also seen people present a lethal threat at the drop of a hat. And so as police officers, we need to make that mental process 
occur faster in order to make a decision cognitively, right? Based upon the perception that we have to mitigate the threat to either us or the public in the performance of our duties. So then it has to happen within milliseconds, right? And there's science based upon just the human processing of what you're visualizing, how you process that mentally, and then what your reaction is going to be will dictate your actions. Yeah. And so I could see that that impacting you, but at a level where you didn't have the tactical training or the experience to to just mentally process a significant life and safety death. Right. So then he presents himself as an assaultive, combative criminal to you. Right. Because he's pointing the firearm at you. So walk us through that. Yeah. So like I said, I, I still haven't made that cognitive leap yet. <laughs> I'm still trying to process what is actually going on. Uh, I hear the pop. I hear a pop and then glass breaking on the windshield and I felt something hit me in the chest. Uh, something, it was like a burning sensation that went in my chest and my side and my arm. And, you know, like you said, these things happen in milliseconds. It's amazing to me the number of thoughts that go through your head in the space of just seconds. Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by StopDefunding.com. The senseless trend of defunding police departments must be stopped. Over 200,000 reasonable citizens have already signed our petition, and we need your help. Visit StopDefunding.com and add your signature to help us protect public safety. Now more than ever, our voices must be heard. Speak up at StopDefunding.com. So as soon as that happened, I thought, oh, that's what he's doing. (laughs) He's shooting at the bus or at me or I didn't know what his goal was. So as soon as I got hit and figured out what was going on, I immediately went down to the right. Survival mode. Yeah. So I'm going to pause you there. So do you think, did you remember making that decision for self-preservation to duck to the side? Because you told me that, yeah, you know, you made the leap now. Right. The assaults occurred. He's throwing a shot at you. Then you were able to feel it, make the cut, you know, the understanding mentally that this is what is occurring. Do you remember making the decision to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought I got to get out of, I have to get out of this guy's line of sight as far as I can. Like that's, that's what I was saying. You know, all these thoughts went through my head. I got to get out of this guy's line of sight, but I can't get out of the seat because I need to maintain control of the bus because I have passengers on the bus. And so, you know, if I get, I actually thought if I unbuckle my seatbelt, I might be able to get lower. But then I thought, no, I'll fall out of the seat if because I do that. Because it's elevated, right? It's an elevated seat. It's one of those seat. cushioned seats, and when you sit in it, it just it compresses. Right. So I knew if I, I, knew if I undid my seatbelt, I would likely fall out of the seat and lose control of the bus. Um, so... I thought, well, I'll get as far out of his line of sight as I can. I've got the front of the bus and a big, heavy fare box next to me. I can use that for cover. And I did think, I do do remember thinking all these things. 
I thought at least the fair box will provide cover so that he can't hit me in the head. Like if he shoots again, he won't be able to hit me in the head. So something that would possibly block, if not significantly reduce the energy of the, the bullet going towards you or the passengers. Right. Correct? Smart. Because you're using cover and concealment. Right. Okay. And as I went down, I remember watching the second shot come through the windshield head high. Really? You were actually... Re- see- yeah. Until you captured that? Because I went down, I went down, and I'm I'm kind of looking upward as I'm going down, and I watched the glass break on the windshield, and that shot was head high. It probably would have caught me in the head had I not gone Holy down. Holy cow. So... Um, as I'm down to the, as I'm down, I heard another shot, but I didn't, no glass broke or anything. I found out later that he, in fact, did shoot at the bus a third time, right where I had gone down. So, oh, so he was tracking you. He was tracking me. Um, so he shot actually right where my, my upper torso and head was, but it hit the front of the bus under the windshield. Um, and a friend of mine's a mechanic at North Base, and they kind of took the front of the bus apart for me because I got to, just weeks later, I got to go and look at that bus and sit in the bus. They had replaced the glass and everything. But we took apart the front of the bus a little bit, and I saw where the bullet came through. It bent a bracket, a heavy metal bracket, all the way back and then hit the inside panel. It stopped just short of coming through the driver compartment. You could see, in fact, they hadn't replaced the panel because I don't know anybody noticed. You could see the big dent the bullet made on the inside of this panel. On the outside, you could see the bump. And I don't want to take away from the the story that day. I just want to lose this train of thought. When you visited that bus post-shooting, when they've kind of repaired it and it's back in service to a degree, yeah, what did that do to you mentally? Did you have any kind of... Remember recall that day as far as impacting you emotionally yeah yeah i went there in the evening and actually my my wife and my daughter were with me um i wasn't sure how it was going to affect me but when my friend said hey that coach is here do you do you want to come see it and i thought well that'll be a good kind of mental emotional hurdle for me to see the bus i actually sat in the seat of that bus and uh, some other mechanics came around, and I recounted the story to them while I was sitting in the seat. Is that right? I kind of showed them what I did and everything. Your daughter there, your wife is there. That's probably helpful. Yeah. Right? And you find, Did you find that cathartic, getting that out verbally to your uh, fellow workers? Yeah. And your family? I did. It, it strangely wasn't emotional for me. I wasn't sure if it was going to be, but it wasn't emotional. But it was good to tell that story sitting in the seat of that very bus I was in when I was shot. So uh, it did not, like I said, I wasn't sure how I was going to react, but it was not emotional for me. But then I, but then <laughs> other things would just catch me out of the blue and kind of uh, make things emotional for me. Like when my wife and I went to visit the scene of the shooting, you know, people had put flowers out because two gentlemen died um and i was fine the whole way we got there we we pulled up by the bus stop 
and stopped the car. And as I was reaching for the door handle, I just remember getting very emotional and I had to sit there for about 15 minutes to compose myself. Is that right? Yeah. So it, which caught me totally off guard. I did not anticipate that because I was fine the whole way. We were going to put flowers there too. And, uh, but as soon as we got there and I reached for the door handle of the car, um, it just kind of a wave of emotion hit me. That's so fascinating. Do you think that that's uh, connected to maybe like PTSD possibly? I suppose uh, from what people tell me that that can happen. You can just be caught out of the blue by a rush of emotion overcomes you. Yeah. Um, by triggers that you're not even aware of. So I've, I've had that happen a, f- a few times relative to the shooting or something else relative to the shooting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. So, um, We'll get into that too. I mean, there's so yeah. many things I want to ask you because I think it's connected to just law enforcement work because you're you're serving the public and then there you are, you met with violence. Yeah. Unfortunately. Okay, so you watched the round come through <laughs> basically where your head was right. near seconds before, if not a second before. Yeah. Uh, the time lap when you were made the mental process that number one, your life's in danger. You just got shot. You made the decision to try to find some cover and concealment. Right. Great move, by the way. Were you trained to do that? No, but I'm one of those kind of I'm one of those situational awareness kind of guys. You're so a little bit switched on. I I think about stuff. I'm the kind of guy that when you get on the ferry boat, I look to see where the safety vests are stored and that kind of thing. Okay, I'm, one, so I'm one of those kind of guys. I, is, I read the card on the airplane yeah. every time. You know. So that this is great, I think, for the uh, for the viewership and the listenership of this podcast is that even just routine things on a day-to-day basis. And I think you say that because, you know, you have that acumen to a degree based upon your metro driving experience of mentally putting yourself in positions that you might need to react quickly. And if you're mentally prepared with a plan, then I think you're going to have a better chance at a at of a positive outcome versus being in condition black, if you will, right, and not being able to process something that might meet you at a drop of a hat. Yeah, I've always been like that. I remember my my now adult kids. I always taught them kind of situational awareness. You know, when you're walking down the street, especially in the city, you know, walk towards the outside of the sidewalk. Don't walk close to the bushes or buildings occasion I, I walk a lot with my now my nine-year-old daughter and I tell her this stuff too I, I'm like you know you sh- just nonchalantly you should occasionally look over your shoulder to see who's behind you or what's going on behind you so I've always kind of been like that observant and when it's uh like with metro I th- I've thought through scenarios, you know, if this, ha- of course, this is not one of those scenarios that ever occurred to me, <laughs> but you know, I try to think through, okay, if this happens, what would I do? So like you said, so I'm not caught completely unprepared when something happens. Yeah. So I already have a concept of like concealment and cover. Um, you know, when I go out to eat or whatever, I, I'm one of those guys that typically doesn't sit with my back to the door. Smart. Look at the exits. I look where the exits are. Sure. I'm not paranoid. I'm just situationally aware. It's a great way to put it. Yeah. That's a 
That's great advice. So if you're if you're watching this and listening to this, have a plan. Yeah. So you had a plan. But you never really envisioned being met with that type of violence. <laughs> no. But I think you were prepared enough to where you were able to mentally adapt to the situation. You didn't freeze. Right. You that's why you that's why the, this is where the hero part comes in. So you're doing your job, you you see something go down with an individual that's somewhat routine, not the shooting part, right? but running to the bus, falling. I'm sure you've seen that before. Um, but then something completely hits your OODA loop, if you will. That's the, that's the acronym I was yeah, like. OODA loop, right? That's yeah. <laughs> a little bit of an acronym right there. Um, and then you have to be able to then change something that hits you really fast. Right. And so then you... You react because you've already mentally processed events, not violence types, but what would you do in these situations? So therefore, you've already have an advantage. Right. And you're reacting to somebody's violence. Rounds come in, and then your immediately thought is not only just self-preservation for yourself, but then this is where the hero part comes in. You think of your passengers. Right. And then you need to get off the X. And what it means by get off the X is the X is that moment in time at that geographic location where what's impacting you significantly, you need to remove yourself from there. Right. Um, How were you able to get the bus in reverse? Walk us through the rounds coming in and then your mental decision, mental processing, and then your decision to act. How did that, how did that come about? Okay. So I'm down uh, three rounds have come at the bus. The first one hit me. Um, I remember thinking, okay, I'm hit in the chest, in the left chest. I don't know how badly I'm hit. I thought, well, I could die. And as I said earlier, I'm a man of faith, so I'm not afraid of death. I don't want to die, obviously. I thought about my family. All these things, again, in pro- probably the space of a second went through my head. Uh, And then I just did a quick assessment. I'm like, okay, well, I'm still conscious because I'm thinking I can still, I can still move my arms and legs and I have a responsibility, you know, obviously self-preservation is a big, I don't want to die, but I also am responsible for these people on my bus. And so I can function still. We're going to get out of here. So right there, I'm going to stop you. Positive thinking. We're going to get out of here. Now, is that, do you remember making that decision? Yeah. And yeah. Do, you, do, do you find that, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do, do you find that that mental voice in your head, that inner voice, I believe in inner voice all the time. Yeah. That's part of your soul. That is your soul. Right. Right. Do you remember saying that to yourself? We're going to get out of here. Was that a positive thought? Or is that just more of action? Or is it both? I think it was both. I do remember actually thinking that. I thought, okay, I can still function. I'm still conscious. I can still physically function. We're going to get out of here. And then I thought to myself, okay, backwards is my only real option. Did you think about running him over? I didn't because this is a bus, right? 
and I'm stop, a dead stop. By the time I accelerated forward, he could have moved out of the way or unloaded the remaining, I think he had 14 rounds left in the magazine. Or flanked you and got to your driver's door. I'm not the driver's door, but the passenger door, the articulating door, yep. right? Yeah, he, he could have done. And so I thought, my priority is preserve my own life and preserve the lives of my passengers. The narrow profile of the bus facing him Plus, I have a bunch of computer gear behind me, behind the seat, behind me. And then on the passenger door side, um, there's a wheel well and a storage compartment. And I thought, well, as long as the passengers stay down, they get down in their seats, this narrow profile backing straight up is going to provide the most cover for me and my passengers. Smart. That's, that's, that's tactics right there. So, so you're thinking cover and concealment, concealment, and just tactical retreat from the X. Yeah, right. he won't be able to see my passengers, and if he does manage to get round more rounds into the bus, they're likely not going to make it back to the passenger because compartment. Because all the obstructions behind you. Exactly. Smart. So I thought, okay, that's my only option. I I can't see the transmission controls because I'm down to the right. I got the fare box. I have my radio, my driver display unit, and it's blocking my view of the dash. So uh, there's transmission buttons on the dash. And it's not easy to get these bus. This was an older coach type, and it's not easy to get these things to go into reverse. You have to have your foot firmly on the service brake. You have to hit neutral, and then you have to hit reverse. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've trained a little bit on how to operate the metro buses when we were doing the SWAT training, and you're absolutely correct. Those are difficult to move. Plus, you had did you engage the air brake at all, or you were just no? When I was stopped, uh, I. I didn't set the parking brake. Uh, I just had my foot on the service brake, and I think it was even still in drive. It, it was still in drive because I was trying to assess what was going on. Sure. And uh, so now I've got to reach over, somehow find neutral without being able to see it, and then reverse. With your left hand. With my left hand because I, mean, because I, ha I have my right hand. <laughs> I have my right hand over where I thought I got hit. I wasn't exactly sure where I got hit. Um, so I have my right hand here to stop. And what made you do that? Did you think it was just a, like, a just a, just a thought to go right to what hurts to cover it? It was a thought to, to compress it. Yeah. It was a thought to compress it in case I was bleeding. Of course, so self, I, self aid. Yeah. R really, you know, as it turns out, the large exit wound in my armpit is where I was bleeding the most from. I didn't know that. So I just put my hand over where I thought the, major injury was to try to compress and slow the bleeding. Sure. Um, so I'm holding onto my chest with my right hand. I'm reaching over, trying to hit the transmission buttons with my left hand. And miraculously, it went into reverse the first time. Now, I've talked to my mechanic friends at Metro, and they talked about how that coach type is notorious for not wanting to go into reverse. <laughs> so miraculously first try it goes into reverse and now i'm holding onto the steering wheel with my left hand and i remember thinking i hope nobody's behind me because i'm backing up because like i said it was my i felt like that was my only option you ever trained that before backing up a bus like that laying down on your right hand side no no because i'm not popping my head back up right right um so 
I'm lying down to the right. My only point of reference is the front passenger door. So I'm looking out the front passenger door, and I backed up about two blocks until I saw the side street come into view. How fast do you think you were going when you were backing up? I have no idea. I'm sure I had my foot all the way down on the accelerator, but those, you know, buses don't accelerate quickly and certainly not in reverse. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure each bus is different. Each model is different or manufacturer. Right. Did it, did you have in that bus like a backup camera up top? I think I've seen them before. No, in fact, this coach didn't even have security cameras. I was hoping it did because I wanted to see the security footage of what happened, but this particular coach didn't even have cameras on it yet. Wow. Okay. So, excuse me. So I backed up. I saw the side street come into view and I have to reach over, hit neutral and then drive. Managed to do that. Well, in the process of backing up, um, I hit the emergency alert button to let panic button. Yeah, we have a we have a panic button, and uh, I hit that. And as I'm making the turn onto this this narrow side street, my radio beeped because the coordinator's responding to my call. Right? Have you, in in your career prior to this tragic incident, have you ever hit the emergency button before? Yeah, I've hit the EA probably one, maybe twice. Do you remember what those circumstances were? One was uh, somebody got hurt on my bus. Somebody had cut off the bus, and I had to stop quickly. Face planted, maybe going forward. Yeah, they hit the... Turns out the guy was was completely drunk, uh, packed full bus. He fell forward and hit his face on one of the stanchions. Um. So I hit the EA for that. So I know from my training that when you do that, um, the coordinator's going to call you, obviously. So I hear the radio beeping, and I'm thinking like a bus driver, right? So I (laughs) I reach over to pick up the radio. Now I know from my training that if you hit the EA button and you don't answer when they call, they're automatically going to dispatch police, fire, whatever. Um but I'm thinking like a bus driver still. So I reach over and I pick up the handset and all I remember saying was, I've been shot, I've been shot, I've been shot. And then I dropped the handset and kept going. Well, because of the distraction, I shallowed my turn and I couldn't quite clear the car that was parked on the left side. And I had friends say, well, why didn't you just plow through that car, you know? Because I'm still thinking like a bus driver, like, well, I don't want to hit this car, right? Isn't it weird how things just go through your mind? It's Yeah, it's just, you know, it's the training. And it was at that point, it was the first time in this experience where I actually felt a little panicky because as I was going to try to put it in reverse again, I saw a bystander run behind the car I was trying to avoid. And he just had this... I don't know if he saw the bullet holes in the windshield, if he obviously had heard the shooting. He just had this look of panic and shock on his face. Yeah. And I thought, crap, is this guy running for the bus? Because I didn't know why he was shooting at the bus. I didn't know if he had it in for Metro or bus drivers. I don't know. Shooting at you. Or me. Yeah. (laughs) I, I didn't know what the deal was. For all I knew, this guy saw the the shooter running for the bus. And that's when I started feeling a little panicky. Sure. It took me 
four tries this time to get it into reverse. Neutral, reverse, neutral, reverse. It's not going into reverse. So do you think at that point that the first time you hit reverse to get off that X, typically given the history of that type of coach, that model being problematic, do you think that might have been some divine intervention? Absolutely. I... I again, as a man of faith, I believe the whole thing. The reason that I was able to do anything I did was superintended by God. I really believe that. I mean, so part of that is, you know, kind of my situational awareness and the kind of person that I am, but that superintended by God's direct intervention, I think is what got So you me could out really go down the rabbit hole that entire day. Yeah. Like Eric Stark, the guy that fills in for routes that need subs, that day, you could really go down the rabbit hole and say, I was chosen for this day. Possibly. Have you thought about that? Sure. I, I, I believe in a sovereign God, so nothing happens outside of his direct intervention. So, um, sure, I believe that. So you were chosen to be there for that specific day to protect the community, protect your, your, your writers. And then you had the wherewithal after being shot to remove them from that violent situation to protect them. But you were also cognitive of people outside the bus that you might run over. Yeah. Right. That's pretty remarkable, man. I think that's why people compare you to being a hero. Are you comfortable with being called a hero? No. Why? Because I'd like to believe that anybody in my situation would do the same thing. I mean, certainly for self-preservation and feeling a responsibility for their fellow human beings, I'd like to believe that anybody in my situation would have done the same thing. I just... I did what I could in the moment with what I was given, what, what I had available to me, and I'd like to believe that certainly any Metro bus driver would have done the same thing. Um, See, again, that's more positive thinking. Positive thinking, even the, with the facing what could be um, very violent uh, life and death situation, you remain positive. Yeah, I mean the alternative is the alternative is to curl up in the fetal position and let myself and my passengers get killed. So those you're absolutely correct. So those years of trying to de-escalate things, even when you're in your teenage years, understanding how to interact with people, and then your life experiences, the training for this metro bus job, mentally preparing yourself to be able to act in situations that you put yourself in mentally to have a plan enabled you to have a successful outcome for this situation. But you were also put there for a reason because you had all this skills. Sure. And there are some people that just don't have that acumen, right? That don't have that, that mindset. So it is tough for other human beings to, to be able to be put in that position and make the decisions that you made. Right. But I, I commend you for that. So having said that, what's it like getting shot? <laughs> I, I've always wondered that myself. And I, 
it's another thought that actually went through my head. I remember thinking right after I got shot that that didn't hurt as badly as I thought getting shot. Because what, cause what would hurt? What do we typically see is like, you, you know, movies, it's like you get lit yeah, up. Exactly. Right. And I'm sure it was a combination of the shock, um, the fact that I had, I, I couldn't afford to focus on that. I had other stuff I had to focus on. Sure. So I think it's a combination of probably shock and um, having to put my mental attention somewhere else. I just remember thinking it felt it was a burning sensation, which makes sense. The friction of a 147 grain bullet going through my torso. Ripping your flesh apart. Right. So it, it made sense that it felt hot. Um, but I don't remember feeling a lot of pain. And I'm not being disrespectful for you getting shot or or. You know, I'm just trying to understand because I've never been shot before. I've been shot at. Yeah. Um, and that's a definitely <laughs> uh, a situation that'll make you mentally process things quick and figure out. It. Um, so, yeah, uh, I hope I never get shot. Yeah, I hope you don't. But, and, but, you know, the reason why I tie that to just law enforcement is to, you know, you have people that say, well, why did they have to shoot him so many times, meaning the police with another person? Because sometimes you need to deliver, and this might sound harsh, deliver, but it's just the way of your talking. Um, you might have to put more rounds into somebody to stop that threat because right, just getting shot one time significantly in your chest, you were able to still think and physically move to save your own bacon, but also to save the people on that bus. So yeah, for the naysayers out there, the reason why we sometimes shoot people more than once or multiple times is because of that immediate threat. You have to stop the threat. Well, there's, that's why I tie that in. I'm not belittling yeah. your situation. No, no. I'm using it as comparison. And there's, you know, there's plenty of stories about people taking multiple rounds, especially nine millimeter, and they keep going. Hmm. Um, so, it, and you know, I'm kind of a firearms guy, and I understand that it's not about trying to kill somebody. Like you said, it's about stopping the threat. threat. I need to act until I can stop the threat. Yeah. because I like the fact that you, you know, you've got a, I guess some knowledge base when it comes to firearms. It's extraordinarily difficult in a stressful situation to focus specifically on one target area of a human body when you have to process the threat and then process your decision-making to mitigate and stop that threat. And that takes milliseconds. I don't even know if that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. And people say, well, why can't you just shoot him in the leg or why can't you just <laughs> shoot him in the hand? And it's absolutely impossible under a stressful situation, a human, even a trained human, to be able to pull that off when somebody's moving and uh, in a stressful environment, it's almost impossible. That's why we're trained to limit the mistakes as best we can to go center mass. And if we have a higher degree of training, say SWAT guys or people that have a high degree of proficiency in firearms, where then you can really target specific areas of the body to try to limit the rounds in order to, st- to stop that threat. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you absolutely. Sure. I mean, 
Um, the other thing that I don't think people understand is that, at least in my understanding, another reason you aim for center mass is you minimize the possibility of, you know, uh, over penetration or collateral damage. You you try to shoot somebody in the leg, your chances of getting a shot on target are much less than if you aim for center mass. And if that round goes by the person, it could hit somebody else. Absolutely. Um, and we've seen tragic incidents occur across the nation where police had to respond to a threat where they were shot or shot at and they respond. Sometimes they miss their intended target. Yeah. That happens because we're human. Well, and it gets back to the empathy thing we were talking about earlier. You know, I people need to put themselves in the shoes of the person responsible for stopping the threat and all the things, all the factors that they have to consider. Um, if I don't stop this threat, is this person going to hurt somebody else? Or if I aim for their leg and miss, am I going to hurt somebody else? You know, um, and and the stress of that situation and the tunnel vision that happens and everything else, um, it's easy to kind of armchair quarterback after the fact um, yeah. situations, right? But trying to put yourself in the shoes of that person and understand the things that they had to face and the decisions they had to make in the moment, in the moment, on the X, yeah. And yet, to this day, and I want to put words in your mouth but you still show empathy and compassion towards the person that shot you that wanted to kill you and kill your passengers. Is that right? Yeah, I don't, I don't wish the guy any ill will. I mean, he needs to he's needs to be responsible for what he did, but I don't have any personal animus for the guy. And I'm not even going to excuse his behavior. He claims he was blackout drunk and doesn't remember any of it. He's a pretty good shot for being blackout drunk. I'll say that he, like you said earlier, he tracked me and, uh, I think he hit where he was aiming every time. So you talk, you, you, you said to me, you saw him take a shooter stance. You've got some history with shooting guns, correct? Yeah. You saw him do a shooter stance. Do you remember him? Was he right-handed, left-handed? He was right-handed. Was he? The gun was so in So typically, right you know, I like to train when you come up, I like to keep front sight all the time sometimes you have to deliver rounds without really gauging the front sight at close distance just right for, for, for the cadence of shots but sometimes you'll see people cock their head do you remember was he was he cocking his head was he really really peering down that front front sight it's funny because i i remember that he was in a shooter stance and then i remember him lowering his head like he was lining up the sights okay so he was specifically remembering to front side because we're because we're you yeah. know in in law enforcement is for the people for the on the podcast you know we're trained front sight front sight front sight front sight all the time because you're really if you're not picking up the front sight in line with your rear sights and if they're not even your shot can go up go down you can hammer the trigger it might dive left just depends upon how you're holding that gun physically in your in your hand and then as you get better with shooting, uh, more more repetitions on the gun, and you get in, put in situations in a training environment where your stress is induced, you have to make rapid shots without really even thinking, hostage situations, whatever. You have to be comfortable with taking a shot without 
focusing on that front sight because it has to be automatic. Right. Right. So that comes with skill and training. And it sounds like this guy had some training and he had the presence of mind to get that front sight. Like he was taking his time. Yeah. It sure appeared that way to me. That's significant. Yeah. So physically, how are you feeling with the gunshot wound to your chest? I mean, is it, uh, what kind of physical ailments, if you don't mind getting into that, what's that like rehab? What did that do to your muscle structure? You know, you get a lot of like nerve endings in your armpit. That's right. We're kind of where your heart is, right? You got right. a lot of veins, a lot of arteries there. So what have you gone through physically that you can share with people? Well, I, if you want to use the word fortunate, I was fortunate enough that, um, the bullet did go close to my heart and it, it left a couple of fragments right next to my heart. Still there? That Yeah. Really? That they were concerned about. Um, but the bullet, I don't know if it deflected off the windshield. I'm sure that was part of it, but it hit me straight in the chest, but then it turned and it went out my side, shattered a couple of ribs on the way out and ended up in my arm. What I thought was the bullet when I had surgery and apparently it's conventional wisdom not to remove bullet fragments, but I had uh, read a study of the, uh, I think it was the Virginia tech shooting of um, survivors and lead toxicity. And I thought, I don't want this in my body. (laughs) So they went to take out what, after I convinced a surgeon, um, they went to take out what I thought was the bullet the main core of the bullet. It turned out it was just the copper jacket and three layers of fabric. I mean, they pulled out a strip of fabric that big that was my sweater vest, my cotton Oxford, and my cotton T-shirt. All, all, all the green metro garments, green, blue, and red, correct? Yeah, it dragged it all into my arm. Let's work on the color scheme, metro. Yeah. A little bit. Let's just change that a bit. <laughs> so uh, as it turns out, the lead core, their, the core separated, it bounced off after it shattered my ribs. It bounced back. It bounced off my spine, fractured um, the transverse process, which is those little bony protrusions on your spine. It fractured one of those and then ended up in my back. Um, the lead, like two thirds of the so how mass f- was retained. That's significant. <laughs> how um, how far away was he from the windshield? And was he, you know, I remember the. the the windshields, I don't remember them being a full piece of uh, glass. I remember they're split, right? You got a, you got right. a rubber gasket divider. So was he facing you in a shooter stance on the passenger side closer to the curb, or was he more in front of your driver's screen? He was, as I recall, he was directly in front of my side of the windshield. Wow, so straight on. Straight on, which is why I thought it was odd that the bullet ended up doing a... Well, you know, and then we, we just got talking about who knows, right? I mean, I guess if you do a CSI breakdown of, you know, where the round impacted relative to where the casing was, where he was standing, using video if it's available in the area, whatever, maybe his trigger discipline was off. He might have thrown it to the right. Therefore, impacted, I would say, the right side of your glass. Was that correct? Or did it, was it more center mass right where you were? 
Do you remember? As I recall the pictures, it was, uh, I think it was center. I think, I think it was more center. So it could have been deflected. You never know. Yeah. Bullets do crazy things when they hit obstructions. Right. They go anywhere. So I think the grace of God, divine intervention again, <laughs> you were able to survive that and act in the manner in which you did to protect yourself, save your own life, but save the community life. That's why you're a hero. That's pretty cool, man. Thanks. So in that that incident, um, tragically, two people were killed. Yep. He carjacks somebody else, kills them. Right. And he was... Shoots him. I believe he went around me as as I was backing up. I believe Bob was behind me. He went around me, I think, right up to the guy, and he shot him in the head. My understanding uh, is that he pulled him out of the car onto the ground and then shot him in the head again. Well, because I don't have uh, I don't have the police report. I haven't yeah. read, reviewed it in a long time. So that I mean, I, well, number one, he's already shown the violence to kill people randomly. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's just tragic. And then and then he gets in that car and then he hopped head on in that somebody. car. Yeah, and then went about five blocks down Sandpoint and got into a head-on with another gentleman in his 70s and killed him and then before he shot at me he shot and hit twice um debbie judd who was a school teacher coming home from work debbie's a f- friend of mine now <laughs> yeah okay yeah, it's the fellow, connection there that's cool fellow survivor in fact we as we talked about trying to put the pieces together he shot he hit her twice she kind of rolled forward half a block onto the shoulder and we think what happened was he had run up to her car and Debbie's like pl- trying to play dead in the seat. He ran up to her car, we think perhaps to finish her off and take her car when I came around the corner. So you got his attention. And- yeah, bigger target of opportunity. And then he ran over to you. And that's when he uh, ran okay. across that, the that street. That explains why he has the gun out already. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know that piece of it. And before her, he had shot at a truck that went by. And I think he hit it three times, but didn't hit the driver. And that woman didn't report it until the next day. She was so freaked out. Sure. She called her insurance company. And uh, her insurance company said, you need to call the police. So she went into North Precinct the next day. Saw the report. And I talked to, to Bridget, who was working the desk that day at North Precinct. And... She said, yeah, the lady was, she was pretty freaked out. So he had shot at two other people before he got to me. Wow. Do you feel, just transitioning here to just the public safety situation in our city, um, do you feel as if the public safety situation is devolving and is your shooting, the people that were shot, the the people that were tragically killed, all those impacted, do you think we're devolving based upon the scrutiny with police or just the way humans are interacting with one another? Like, why are we in this position, if, if, you, if you want to explore this? Well, just my observation, I, I think it's a combination of all those things. You know, with the pandemic uh, and then the riots, the lockdowns, I think people are on edge. People are depressed. Um, I think there's a whole number of factors. Anxiety is 
higher on the rise. Um, and from what I read in the news, you know, murders are going up. And I don't know. I don't know if I don't know what motivates people to do these things. If it's desperation, if it's uh, what it is. I certainly think that I was at Everett Police Department yesterday, um, and was talking with some officers there, and the it's it appears that disrespect for law enforcement has definitely gone up. One officer is relaying to me that he uh, he was driving down the road and he saw a guy riding a bicycle and he looked like Napoleon Dynamite, you know, from the the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Great movie. Uh, he he notices he's driving by and he's he's driving by he's just driving down the road. The guy just flipped him off randomly. Just randomly flipped him off because he's a cop. He's just wearing a uniform. He's wearing a uniform, driving a police car. Do you think that level of, I guess discontent towards people that are doing the job of policing is warranted? I don't. No, absolutely not. What do you base that on? Like, to, so, so specifically, it's just, I want to tell you what to say, because you're here in your own free will, but, you know, there's the naysayers that watch this podcast that, you know, you know you're on here as just a cop apologist. What would you have to say to the people that, show that level of discontent to cops that malign and besmirch cops reputations, the human beings that do the job of policing, what would you say to them? Well, it gets back to what we talked about earlier. They're human beings. Um, You need to look past the uniform and remember these are women and men who have spouses, kids, mortgages to pay, lawns to mow, they go to the grocery store like you do. These are fellow human beings, fellow citizens with a difficult job to do. Um, I think it's easy to demonize anyone based on the job they do or the uniform they wear or if, if, you, if you've had bad experiences with law enforcement, it probably colors your view of everyone in that job. But do we really want to prejudge people that way? I mean, that's kind of the definition of prejudice, isn't it? And I'm happy to be a cop apologist. And it's based on my personal experience. You know, after this, you know, I, I designed that challenge coin uh, that I've been giving to officers. I've been to all the SPD precincts. I've been to several local agencies, Edmonds, Linwood, Mount Lake Terrace, Everett. I have personally met and handed coins and shaken the hand of over 300 law enforcement officers in probably the last six months. I have friends who are SPD officers. I have family members who are and were in law enforcement. I've met and gotten to know a lot of these people, and that's what I base my view of law enforcement on the individuals whom I have met, talked to, interacted with. I've been on ride-alongs. I see the way that officers treat the people with whom they interact. And honestly, what I see most of the time is care, concern, a desire to serve and help members of the public. So yeah, 
granted, my view of law enforcement is based on my own personal experience. So I would encourage people, you know, when they're not on a call or something, you have opportunity, go up and talk to a police officer. Get to know them as an individual. Look past the uniform. I'm sure that there are issues uh, with law enforcement that needs to be addressed. Um, and I think SPD certainly has been doing that for the last nine years. Um, but these are individuals. These are fellow human beings. And that's kind of the basis of how I operate, like I talked about before. We need to see each other and treat each other as human beings at the very basic level, meaning everyone's worthy of dignity and respect. So start there instead of coming in with your preconceived ideas or prejudices or even some bad experiences you may have had previously. Try to approach every situation, every person as a fellow human being and decide I'm going to treat them with dignity and respect and then take it from there. That's well said. If you were to give, let's break this up into two things. Would you take what you just said as advice to the community? Absolutely. And I say it whenever I get the opportunity to people. And what would you say to cops? And break it up into two things. And you and I, we haven't talked about this at all. I've spoken to you on the phone. I can met you once before. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first time you and I have really interacted. Right. What would you say, given your role as a Metro bus driver, as a fellow human being, somebody who serves the public, who's been living in this region for a very long time, you have a great family, uh, you're a man of faith, what would you say as advice to the human beings that do the job of policing? I would say the same. I, I would say two things. I would say the same thing that I would tell anybody else. Um, approach people with empathy and treat everybody as a human being worthy of dignity and respect. I get that police officers have to deal, as you said, with people often at their worst and people who tend to be viewed as uh, more challenging groups of people in our society. I do too as a bus driver. And so I get that that can cause frustration. It can color your view of human beings. It can even cause you to lose faith in the goodness of other people. I, so I get that. So I would say to police officers, um, approach everyone, at least at a basic level, as a human being worthy of dignity and respect and treat them with empathy. Again, my experience has been, I, I've seen that from the law enforcement officers I know uh, generally operate that way. The second thing I would say, and I've been telling law enforcement officers this for several months now when I go to see them, is in my experience, most people in the community respect, appreciate, and support you as individuals and the job that you do. That's my experience. That's my observation. But I would remind them that when you may think that everybody hates you, the truth is that most people in the community respect, appreciate, and support you and the difficult job that you're 
being asked to do. Well said times two. Well done. Um, I believe what you just said wholeheartedly. And I've been saying this for months in the media appearances I do and with, you know, my passion to, for this job, for this city, and the, just the profession of law enforcement and the people that work for SPD. Um, you know, we're not perfect. We're human beings. And that's just it. That's the message. And we'll try to do the best we can. I think the issue is, and this goes into just politics now, is that when we're used as a profession, I think for political gain, when people intentionally insert politics into public safety, we all suffer. And I think that the scrutiny on law enforcement is indeed sometimes warranted, but not to the level that it's at them right now. We do make mistakes. It's because we're human. But I think for just this region and I think across the nation, um, we're, we're people that have pledged our lives to serve others, much like you serve others. We took an oath of service to give our lives in the service of that oath to other complete strangers, people that might hate us, might love us. But although you didn't swear to an oath, you still acted in the same manner that a cop would in the service of others. I think that's profound. That's why you're the hero. It's really excellent, man. It shows you the kind of human you are. Um, and, you know, your message is profound that I just wish our politicians would have the courage to stand up against the activists who are trying to paint a false picture of the humans that do the job of policing. And that's what drives me to just keep pushing because, you know, you were basically um, applauded for your actions by our politicians. In fact, you have Eric Stark Day. <laughs> Mayor Durkin gave you on <laughs> August 19th. That day is Eric Stark Day. It's pretty cool. Um, but what I'm, what I'm dismayed about by our politicians is that the loud act activist crowd the small activist crowd, which they are, they're the ones that are driving the public safety political discourse in our area. And yet the majority, I call them the ignored majority of our public, support public safety, in particular police officers. Mm -hmm. Why is it occurring then that these activists are pushing this narrative about policing so profoundly, and now it's impacting Olympia, the state capital, to try to change laws to punish police officers for more accountability. So I guess the next, you know, we can do it briefly as we, you know, what can we do better? Besides, you know, maybe we, be, I want to put words in your mouth, but maybe that's what's, missing is just the ability to get a narrative out there of maybe just treating people with more empathy mm -hmm. on both sides. And maybe these activists wouldn't be pushing this false narrative anymore for political gain. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it gets back to my, my basic MO. We need to get to know 
people as individuals. We need to take the risk, whether it's um, reaching out to folks in these activist groups, uh, and I would encourage them to do the same. Take the risk, you know, take the political risk, the personal risk, whatever risk you see, and try to talk to and get to know the person who perhaps holds the opposing viewpoint. Gets back to the whole treat each other as human beings thing. It's it's easy to kind of paint a picture of the person or the group you have an issue with and then make up your list of complaints and demands. But have you actually taken the time to get to know, talk to, interact with on a, a one-to-one basis with the people you have issues with. I think once we start seeing each other as human beings, um, we're going to find ways to come together. People will, people will be less defensive. When t- somebody takes a shot at you, it's natural to throw up a wall and get defensive. But when you come together and you're willing to say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. You, I think, Perhaps you have some legitimate grievances here. So let's talk about them. Um, But if we can't come to that place, if we can't drop our defensive wall and take the risk to interact with people one-on-one, get to know a, a little bit about them, have some empathy to try to understand where they're coming from, we're not going to get to a place where we're going to reach any kind of compromise or... Well, and that's the other thing. I use the word compromise. Compromise somehow has become a dirty word today. Compromise means you're weak or um, you know, or you're sacrificing your principles or your your firmly held ideology instead of saying, no, I'm trying to understand where this other person is coming from, and I'm trying to see if there's a place where we can come together and have some agreement and work together because obviously we're going to be more effective for society as a whole. If we can work together on things instead of working against each other, that's going to create uh, more polarization, a bigger divide. And it's going to be that much harder at some point to be able to come together and find solutions together. Because just yelling at each other, there's no solutions. No. There's just more arrows and walls. And things like social media just exacerbate that. It's it's easy to take shots at people from the the safety of our couches and our computer screens instead of coming together. I, I read a story, this was a few months back or several months ago. Um, I can't remember what group it is that works with... Uh, the African-American community, they came together in a park and it was an opportunity for people to meet police officers. And I remember reading the news story about this one gentleman who had had negative interactions with law enforcement, but he came to this thing anyway and he talked to a couple of police officers and it actually changed his mind. I mean, it gave me some hope that this is what I've been talking about. You actually took a risk, you came, you may have been expecting a fight, you know, verbally, but when you talked to these people, 
maybe had some empathy for one another, it actually changed this gentleman's mind about how he has viewed law enforcement. You know, my first guest on the lawn uh, on this podcast was Victoria Beach, the chair of the African American Community Advisory Council. Yeah, I've met her, and I believe she relayed that same story. Right that that was the story. She was the one I think who set that up, and yeah. I was really impressed by that. It, it just gave me hope again that if we can come together and talk, even for a few minutes, and just try to get to know one another, have a little empathy, um, it can change people's minds. Well said. Eric Stark, you are a hero in my view. I look up to you. I think you've got courage and you're a true public servant. I think our region and King County is uh, lucky to have you on board, as well as uh, I consider you a friend. And uh, your words ring home to me, sir. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I hope that people listening and watching this uh, digest what you've said today and perhaps changes their viewpoints or just gives more of a connection to another human being. Well done. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. Until next time, hold the line with Mike Solon. We look forward to future guests such as Eric. And again, we must come together as a community. And if we keep this division We're not going to get anywhere that's a positive path forward. We can do this. Thanks, everybody.